0: When you think about how medicine started medicine really looked at the society as a whole and say if we're going to fix these diseases we have to go to the root of the problem and you can't just always fix someone at the bedside right you're you're, you're way late at that point Hello everybody.
1: Hi.
0: Welcome to At Home with Lyndon
2: Drew Scott, a show where we chat with artists, experts, dreamers, and doers about what makes us feel most at home.
1: Hmm. And through these conversations we learn all about relationships with ourselves, our communities, and the planet. This episode may have a bit of body language.
2: This is at home. Yeah, it feels
1: like home. Hey everyone, hope you're all keeping healthy.
2: We are happy to be back with Emma Talks, a conversation program about today's most pressing climate issues. I'm so excited, my voice even cracked.
1: (laughs) You accelerated there. (laughs) As board members of the Environmental Media Association, we're always looking for ways to bring expert knowledge into our everyday lives and make it easy to understand and apply in our own
2: homes. Well, with all the wildfires, hurricanes, and flash floods we saw this summer, we wonder how safe are the environments we live in and how do the communities we reside in in influence our health and the health of the animals and plants we coexist with.
1: And today we are super excited to be joined by our resident climate science guru, Dr. Jay Lemery and policy fellow, Dr. Emily Spiroli of the esteemed Climate Science Department of the University of Colorado. Dr. Spiroli is focused on disaster preparedness and advancing climate smart healthcare.
2: Dr. Jay Lemery is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, chief of the section of wilderness and environmental medicine. Dr. Lemery has contributed and co-edited several papers on the effects of climate change on human health. In 2017, Dr. Lemery co-authored Enviromedics, the impact of climate change on human health. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security.
1: I mean, what are they going to do next? They're they're going to start a country singing career.
2: I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying your
1: Google Nest doorbell. I said our. He said, My. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks,
2: <laughs> my security system with Google <laughs> Nest speakers and displays.
1: And I like to say, Hey, Google, to get started.
2: Listen, I said, Ours. I'm all about ours, not <laughs> mine. Help protect what matters most with all this, plus 24 7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google.
1: Visit adt.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. In this conversation, we are focusing on the built environment and climate change.
2: Basically, how climate policy in neighborhoods across America affects the health and well-being of their citizens. So welcome, Dr. Emily Sproley and Dr. Jay Lemery.
1: Welcome.
2: Welcome, welcome.
1: Emily, can you can you tell us? what you do. Introduce yourself because we hear that you are currently dedicating a full year to train in climate and health policy.
3: Well, I'm an emergency medicine trained, just finished my residency out in San Diego. And I am currently working out in San Diego in lots of different hospitals. I work in the community, we call it. So I'm not exactly doing academics anymore, but I'm doing academics sort of through Jay and this fellowship. And I actually met Jay in 2017 which was the first year of the fellowship and I think I don't think you remember at all but I met you at Med, and I was so like enthralled he was talking about his book this new book EnviroMedics and he was on this panel and I bought the book like that day I had you sign it I wish I had it with me now so I could like show you Um, And then I remember you telling me about this fellowship and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do like when I'm done with residency because you had to finish, you know, whatever medical training you were doing in order to actually do the fellowship. So I kind of had my eye on it for a while. Basically what it's a virtual fellowship. So I get to still work, um, work clinically, work with patients almost full time, basically just the schedule allowing. Um, And then we meet, you know, pretty regularly every week and we get we get placed in different organizations. So I'm working with the EPA as well through this fellowship with the uh, Climate Impacts Branch and also working with another organization called Healthcare Without Harm, which is kind of like the NGO side
2: of it. We have, uh, and we'll get into some questions uh, as well about the different areas uh, and healthcare without harm as well. Um, Jay, do you want to just, I know you stood up for this program a few years ago, and do you want to explain a little deeper from your perspective?
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, about 15 years ago was that sort of the first round of science bashing with climate and health, and it began, became to be politicized. And around then, I, I was just thinking, and I was doing a lot of wilderness medicine work, so working in remote, austere places, beautiful ecosystems. And I was like, you know, we can debate policy, but we really can't debate science, because then we're all just idiots. And you know what a what a foreshadow that was. Um, and in, around the same time, I said, well, okay, I'm a physician. Um, where are, where are there other physicians? Why aren't we weighing in on these larger debates about climate and health and the health impacts? And I realized there was a conspicuous absence. There were just like no one around. So I began to pivot my academic career, began to look into more climate and health issues. And I realized like, we have got to start churning out physicians who can be credible, knowledgeable, effective leaders. And there were like zero programs or very few avenues to do this really. It came down to, you know, incidental meetings. People like Emily seeing me at a conference and maybe we spark on something, maybe we don't. But other than that, there was nothing. And so a few years ago, we teamed up with a foundation in Denver and we started this fellowship. And fellowship is just what you do after, immediately after your residency training, um, whether that's internal medicine pediatrics, emergency medicine. And so now we've got five physician fellows. We have them placed at federal agencies and partnering with NGOs working in the climate and health space. And our goal, frankly, is at the end of this year is that Emily is going to be even more of a hot shot than she already is and be able to, you know, force multiply her education into affecting change and doing it, you know, wearing the medical metaphorical white coat and again being on the podium as a very convincing and articulate leader.
1: How do you explain that to like an everyday person, like, what does that look like? Is it, is it speaking at summits? Is it working to change policy? And how do you go about doing that? It's all very fascinating, but also it can feel like very broad and vague. So we just want to like break it down for people.
3: So as a physician, for me, I plan on working with hospitals, you know, that's just going to be want with patients, with hospitals, that's what I want to do. And I want part of what I want is to have the healthcare sector basically be the leader in this crisis. Um, We are contributing to the problem, you know, as the healthcare, just the by virtue of patient care delivery, we're contributing to the problem itself. So to me, that's like the biggest irony in the world, right? If I'm trying to make somebody feel better, why am I contributing to their like negative health outcomes? So Mm -hmm. that's basically what I want to do with it. With the other fellows, it's really just having that background to be able to talk about it exactly. Yeah, do no harm. Uh, But to be able to talk about it and push whatever it is that you want while having the credentials of an MD behind it. Physicians typically one of the more kind of trusted sources of information by the public. So we kind of try to leverage that. um, And by making us knowledgeable in also climate related policy, technology, science, you know, those kinds of things, I think it really gives us an edge so that we can intelligently talk about it and be convincing.
0: Totally. Yeah. I'll just just add that, you know, physicians, the data tells us that we are trusted advisors, right? We still hold the public trust when we sit down with our patients at the bedside and say, hey, you know, you need to take this pill. You need this surgery. You know, second opinion is notwithstanding. Our patients look at us and they say, okay, doc, Yeah, that sounds good. You know, it's very different than almost any other profession in a, you know, a very cynical age. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a very, it's a, it's a powerful fulcrum that we have. And I'll just say, I'll say, although physicians are up there, nurses are number one. So a lot of what we're trying to do is build programs to bring in our fellow healthcare providers. So Mm. again, anyone who touches a patient, whether it's a nurse or a PA or even people like pharmacists and social workers, you know, we're, we're thinking about how to, how to build that clinical educational component to, to get people savvy. Which is amazing. Like you said, you already have the trust factor is already there.
2: And now it's backing that up with more specific knowledge in this area, which is so important. So you've written on the importance of social equity in our neighborhoods, particularly as we're
0: thinking about new climate-friendly policies. Can you elaborate a little bit more? One of the things we think about is, you know, now we have this chance to reinvent our public health Systems, right? And as we do that, we want to turn our lens towards uh, advancing social equity and issues of climate justice, right? You know, and the idea is is that the the most vulnerable of us are going to bear the disproportionate brunt yeah. of climate change. And and now COVID is mixed up into that, right? But just you know, briefly, we think about you know what can we do to reinvigorate our communities? We think about exposure to green space, and that's important for recreation. It's really important for air quality so kids aren't playing next to you know, a route of diesel trucks going back and forth to industrial areas. We think about the urban heat island effect, right? So if there's green space, communities can cool off at night during a big heat wave, and they can't do that you know, if it's all blacktop. It just holds the heat much longer. Uh, we think about transportation choices. So how far do people have to walk through industrial areas to be able to have transportation. And we're trying to decrease the uh, importance of using cars, right? So whether right. it's um, uh, scooters or subways or other you know, mass transit. Within this also, we think about food deserts, right? So the idea that do people have access to good, nutritious food, which again, in our most vulnerable communities, all they have is like a 7-Eleven with processed food and Slurpees. Mm-hmm. And then at, at a bigger picture, in terms of reinvigorating communities, we think about economic opportunities. So how can we bring in uh, resources to train our workforce, you know, historically hasn't had great opportunities towards uh, infrastructure rebuild, things like disaster response, which I think has a real, um, one, it's important for the resilience of a community, but also allows us to give skill sets, like first responders to people that allow them entry-level jobs into the healthcare sector, which is, you know, like a fifth of our economy. And then also emerging jobs like renewables.
1: I think it's so fascinating that you guys as doctors get to apply this broader lens. And so important that you are looking at urban planning as it pertains to health. Can you tell us what it requires of you in terms of like collaborating with other roles, with other positions, um, you know, city planners? Because it, it does sound so collaborative, like you wouldn't expect a doctor to be
0: talking about. Um, Let me just say something that I'm going to turn over Emily, which is you think this is like a great idea, right? But even within medicine, like we have eaten a ton of, you know what, from our colleagues who say mm-hmm. that advancing social justice is not the role of medical education. We want patients, uh, physicians that know how to treat patients, not give lecture on gun control, obesity or any of the other, you Wait, know. Which is pandemics. total
2: bullshit because you're the ones with the knowledge and you're the ones with the experience that can be um, dramatically changing our lives for the better. Yeah,
0: totally. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to put in the post and perhaps we can put it out there. Some op-eds written by a prestigious journal that, um, again, uh, hammer us for having this different view. I mean, when you think about how medicine started, medicine really looked at the society as a whole and say, if we're going to fix these diseases, we have to go to the root of the problem. And you can't sure. just always fix someone at the bedside, right? You're, you're, you're way late at that point.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, that's the thing we look at. I call it lipstick on a pig. You're not doing anything totally, if you keep just totally. a little bit of lipstick on the pig. You need to get to the root of the problem. And um, and if it's not for the professionals that are the the ones that people look up to in society, then who who else? I mean, a lot of people just don't have the knowledge or they don't have the ability to help lead the, in the direction we need to go.
0: Yeah, and Drew, like uh, we have been because a lot of us are on Twitter. This is how we communicate, right? Like many other people, we've been labeled left wing medical Twitter. Just because we're taking an activist role in issues like climate and health, because we're we're looking at the science and saying this is gonna suck, it's gonna affect it's gonna affect the future of all of our health. And so I, again, it's um, it's surprising how much backlash there is. Um, yeah,
2: it, it, honestly, the, I think the one thing, it just this is my opinion, but. People get their defenses up when they are with the unknown. People get their defenses up when there's change. People get used to a certain routine. And unfortunately, in our society in North America, we have a lot of systemic routines that have been hammered into us generation after generation. And they're not the best for us. They're not the healthiest for us. This is everything from healthcare to the way we operate in our home, education. So I strongly agree that if we all just took a breath, and took a step back just to realize it's a good thing to consider something different that could give us a better
0: outcome, a healthier outcome for all of us. Maybe Emily could go back to you, because one of the things that she's doing now is bringing the physician perspective into a place that has almost no doctors, but they're still charged with community health at the EPA. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I know that's exactly what what I'm seeing and what we're doing is A lot of people have their, at least at the EPA and the folks that I've been working with and exposed to kind of have their heart in the right place. You know, they have all these different backgrounds and they're scientists, they're geologists, they're planners, they're engineers. Um, But no one is really like a physician who's able to kind of see firsthand how these impacts are actually affecting people, you know, patients. When there's a wildfire, like what does somebody look like who has asthma? When there's a heat wave, somebody who has cardiovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes, what does their day look like in a heat wave, right? They don't actually get to see kind of that part of it. And so that's what I get to bring to the table into those conversations there. And I'm in turn learning just so much about mm-hmm. what policies are out there, how the government actually works, how, you know, when we're trying to make change, um, I'm learning just a ton. So it's just been super, a really kind of collaborative interesting dynamic to have me there kind of bringing in hey actually you know i think it's important that you guys do this health fact sheet for children with asthma during heat waves because of xyz you know um so it's been a really really cool experience with that
2: yeah and can you talk a little bit more you mentioned it earlier as well but can you talk a little bit about the healthcare without harm
3: yeah sure so healthcare without harm um their organization they basically their goal is to get the entire healthcare sector, the global healthcare sector, to carbon zero. Um, you know, the, they're taking this first do no harm a dodge pretty pretty far. Um, so, what they're doing, I mean, I'll just basically share one statistic that I remember off the top of my head right now is that the U.S. healthcare sector contributes about eight percent of total U.S. emissions. So, just the healthcare sector itself is 8% of all of our country's emissions, wow. which is pretty pretty significant, yeah. And that actually kind of went down, so we're actually doing a little bit better. Um, but in their latest report, um, it's, it's 8%. So they actually came out recently back in April of this year with, a the, for the first time, they basically baselined where we are on, on a global scale, where the healthcare sector is on a global scale, baselined our impact, and created this kind of global roadmap to decreasing in the decarbonization of the healthcare industry globally. So this is the first time that they really released this, something like this. It's, the, it's It was a collaboration with uh, the WHO, with the World Bank. Um, so it wasn't just healthcare without harm, but it was kind of this whole big international collaborative.
2: When they're looking at that initiative to um, decarbonize, are they talking about... In the work facilities, or are they also talking with the vehicles that they're using. Is it every aspect of everything healthcare?
3: It's all, all of the above. So yeah, it would be energy. It would be buildings and infrastructure. It would be pharmaceuticals, supply chain, uh, business admin type, um, you know, like practices. Mm. Um, so it's basically they, they, their goal is to try and get healthcare sector globally to carbon zero by 2050.
1: I thought with. Covid, it would have increased. You said it.
3: It has decreased the total emissions. So the total emissions compared to about a decade ago. Mm. Mm. Covid, we're still. We actually are pulling in some of the data now. Um, I actually have a meeting in about a week to kind of chat about what that data looks like from 2020 and to kind of unpack it and see what happened during Covid. You know, it's kind of hard to tell because some some hospitals didn't get hit as hard as other hospitals and didn't necessarily have as many patients as other hospitals. So we'll see. Yeah.
1: Yeah, When you look at the nature of like PPE and everything that is used in patient care, it's, and of course the topic of like sanitation, like it's, it seems like waste goes hand in hand, but it would be cool if if we could find a solution.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. That's like the one thing that I always kind of, every shift right it's like that that balance of patient safety making sure that we're not transmitting anything crazy you know patient comes first right for me for healthcare
1: Can you guys talk a bit more about how COVID has affected your work?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. there's a few things. Well, there's the um, emergency medicine part of it, which has just been overwhelming. We have seen so many different waves of COVID. At first, it was extraordinarily scary. Our friends in New York got hammered hard. Lorna Breen, who is a physician that succumbed to suicide was like dear friend. And we trained together and she was an administrator at a New York hospital, um, which again, is just sort of epitomizes the mental health toll on on so many healthcare workers. And it's been scary because we're now running out of basic, have run out of basic things like ICU beds to take care of people in the manner that we were trained to do. Mm -hmm. Now we're pivoting, right? And so people with COVID, that are vaccinated, I'm just gonna say it, they're just not sick. Um, They come in, they have COVID, they may be uncomfortable, they may have, you know, viral symptoms, um, but generally they're just not sick. It's the unvaccinated now that are still having, they're still succumbing to Mm -hmm. uh, the horrible things. And that's difficult, it's very difficult as a care provider, but also society member to look at them and, and say how, why not? And then, you know, people will be, gasping for words. And yet the words that they want to tell you as a care provider is that I still think the vaccine is BS and I'm glad I didn't have it. <laughs> and it is extraordinarily difficult to find empathy and, and compassion in our job. I'm just going to say it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think one aspect of that that's a little frustrating too
2: is that there has been just so much misinformation. And then again, people being... Led by those who are maybe not the right people to be giving whatever information about COVID or the vaccine and and whatnot. It, that, to me, that's the frustrating thing: is that people stick in with those who that they trust, but if the person they trust is not the person who has the right information, how are you gonna how are you gonna get through to someone? It's crazy uh i wanted to to jump back and again jay if you want to talk about this so i was reading a little bit about cities historically built around belching factories and huge consumer uh consumers of energy per capita they're more energy efficient than suburban and rural areas can you expand on that a little bit i mean it doesn't seem like that would be a healthier place to live
0: but from what i was reading it sounds like that those communities are well, they're definitely it's 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 right, it's a crazy paradox, right? Because you don't think about that. You think farms are super healthy, you know, places to live. And but the truth is is that per capita, cities generally use less energy per person because they just don't have as many energy consuming resources. They don't have the big Ford F one fifty. Um, they don't have huge houses to, to warm. They live in an apartment generally. And they're walking a lot more because that's just the nature of a city. Now, Hmm. that's true for you. Some people live in very destitute parts of a city and that's, I guess, different. But on whole, um, yeah. And I, I think what's interesting is that cities have been incubators of innovation for a while, particularly with resiliency and sustainability. Um, that group C40, which is this, the 40 large nonprofit, the 40 largest megacities in the world, and now a, a lot more, they've been doing a lot of meaningful work, particularly when what, you know, I would consider the dark ages of climate change, which is pretty much the last 15 years, um, maybe 20 years, where there's been a paucity of meaningful action. You know, uh, in, in global go- international governance, and certainly at the federal level, but at the city level, they actually have been doing very innovative things. You know, so uh, even New York City has done a lot to advance uh, bike lanes and green space. Um, Paris is now a bike city, which. If you've ever been to Paris you're just you you know the amount of people sort of smoking and, and honking their cars in the traffic um, it's remarkable to think about that and I've seen pictures where now there's just full of bikes and um, that that's that's a very powerful picture mm-hmm. um, and even here in Denver right so the last election the Denver voters voted for um, a climate fund which now generates 40 million dollars in revenue for the city to oh, wow. reimagine sustainability and, and energy use and to advance climate justice. So to me, that's a, it's very exciting. And I think you know the winds we see in our large urban areas hopefully will translate to the state and federal level as well. For the record, I
2: mean, I love seeing changes like we were saying in Paris too, but I also heard that Paris is so forward-thinking that they don't just have clean water fountains for everybody. It's filtered water. They also have, what, what do you call it, like sparkling water? Oh everybody. yeah, Perrier. They're Perrier. So fancy. They have, and that's like in the park, the little fountain that you uh, you drink out of. They also have like Perrier fountain, anyway. That's awesome. So, um, what one, one thing I want to touch on, you know, obviously the home space is very important to us because you know we truly do believe. Everyone deserves um, to have a home they love, somewhere they feel secure, somewhere they feel really speaks to them, and, a healthy, and home. a healthy home. Yeah, exactly. And so, a big thing for us that we're really working on is decarbonization of the home space. And so, you're thinking of, you know, new builds. A lot of people, you know, they they're just they're brainwashed into thinking certain things are best. A prime example in the home space is gas for cooking. Everyone, it was just a great marketing campaign years and years ago where if you want to cook like a chef, you need an open flame. In reality, it's not great. It's uneven cooking. If you look at induction, induction is even cooking. It's fast. You're, you're not going to, kids aren't going to burn their hand on the surface. Um, so there are a lot of things that are just education tools that we've been working on to try and let people understand this isn't just actually better for you for cooking or whatever it might be, but it's also going to create a healthier environment for you and your community.
1: And I just wanted to add to that, like education tools for for us as well, because we've used how many you know, gas stoves in, in renovations and designs, but it's a matter of like us growing up with what we knew. So it's it's mm-hmm. important for us to be just as curious um, in order to relay this information to, to consumers.
0: It's hard to make the transition, right? Because you just, you know what you grew up with and now we're, we, we have to continually reimagine that. Mm-hmm. Think about, you know, what, what do we still need? I mean, we still, I still need gas to get around. Sadly, but that's the way that's the world we live in. One question I want to ask is: Are you guys um, collecting green hacks or sharing that with with your ecosystem? Because to me, that that I feel like yes, I feel like I feel like people yeah. have an appetite for that. Yeah, but I don't okay. know an appetite. I want to know.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> I, we always have an appetite. I love learning something new. That's a little hack. Now, are you talking about in general, like like uh, at your home for home life? What are you thinking?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, we watch you guys because you guys make us think about our house in different ways and how much better we can live. And so, yeah, but I mean, I think about the work that you've done and, you know, the Habitat for Humanity Award that you won, Drew. And and I think about like, oh, this is, you'd be a wonderful, you know, you and Linda place to go to, to be like, okay, how do I hack my home? And maybe, you know, I've got a hundred bucks to spend or I'm thinking about moving, you know, what do I need to look for?
2: Well, we do, I mean... When with habitat, I mean, I was honored to be Jonathan and I were considered um you know, habitat humanitarians and it's it's quite an honor to be bestow it upon us, but it's just because of our passion for the environment and just keeping, you know, creating a healthier space for everyone. We've built homes from Alaska down to, you know, areas of Florida with, with habitat. And we've done a lot, you know, on our social media and in interviews, we talk about tips and tricks and things to do around the house. Not everything has to be you know, solar panels that can be more expensive. There are a lot of smaller things that you can do. Linda and I actually have a show that we're pitching to HGTV that we're talking to them about. That is actually going to be completely green uh, build and that's cool. Like yeah, like decarbonize. It's like uh, it's going to be such a beautiful build. And every aspect of the build is going to be something that's sustainable uh, or eco conscious. And so, I think there is an appetite for that. It's growing. I think the approach that we like to take too is we don't like to attack somebody for not um, being green. For example, gas is here for a while. It's not disappearing. Yes, we're reducing the amount of uh, dependency that we have on fossil fuel, but it's not like an overnight switch that we can flick and all of a sudden we're all green. So with that in mind, we're trying to show people here are other options, something that may not pollute as much, something that is uh, better for your home and your health.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is why we love working with EMA because you know, we're always trying to figure out the, the formula that works in, in terms of storytelling and educating because we never want to preach. And I think for us, like where it feels the best is where like we take them along on this learning journey because we, and and we get to talk to people like you, Dr. Jay and Dr. Emily. Um, like you say, you look to us for, you know, how to make our homes better places to live, but Really, like it's it's joining the design, like the aesthetic, with the the health and the science.
2: Yeah, and, and actually, that's that's a big part of, you know, for us, one of the biggest things we love. That's why we love at home our podcast and and um, working with Emma for Emma Talks is because this gives us the ability to give a platform to amazing gurus of climate like yourselves to help educate everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. and that's and I just go back to the beginning, right? Talk about like the the need for multi-sectoral. Mm-hmm. Um, collaboration. I mean, that's why as academic physicians, we go to Emma because we get to think beyond our silo. And And this is not going to be a problem fixed within the silo for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We haven't talked about climate medicine yet. Hashtag climate medicine, right?
3: <laughs> Hashtag climate medicine.
2: Hashtag climate medicine. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
3: I'm, I don't want to credit us, but you know we are basically the pioneers right of this kind of new genre of medicine these new new genre of healthcare workers who really have this kind of broader macro understanding of what are the impact what are the effects on human health overall and how can we how can we move forward as a society so i think climate medicine is the overall idea that the healthcare sector and healthcare workers should be leading the movement in some way or should be heavily you know, pioneering it or providing whatever support that other, other you know, collaborators may need. Um, so that's what I, I think, I personally, how I see it and how, what I think climate medicine is, it's really being able to talk about the problems and relating it always back to human health and making sure that we're doing the right things and being preventative. One of the things that actually COVID kind of taught me in general was this idea of preparedness and being ready for something, and one of the things that you know COVID really showed us. I mean, the healthcare sector as an as an entire you know global sector didn't wasn't ready for COVID. We just weren't. We had maybe weeks to two months at best to really prepare for something like this, and the results, like frankly, were pretty disastrous. You know, we weren't. We didn't do a good job kind of managing this pandemic overall. Um, but with climate and the climate problem. We have like decades of information now and almost decades of knowledge and data and technology and ideas that we just didn't have with COVID, right? So imagine how much more prepared we really are, just kind of every sector everywhere to really deal with it. And I just kind of think about it. Imagine if we had like the 10-year head start on COVID, right? What the healthcare sector would have done and how, how this entire pandemic would have looked. So that's what I think kind of is the crux of climate medicine is also this appreciation of getting everybody ready and preparedness and understanding what's going on. I mean, the latest IPCC report, the one that just came out earlier, um, a couple of highlights from there basically s- strongly suggested that there we've already entered a period of no return in some of these climate impacts. So things like rising sea levels and rising ocean temperatures and the melting of the ice sheets The data, basically the science behind all of that has suggested strongly in this last report that we've already entered kind of a period of no return, which is critical to know, right? It's critical for the urban planning point of view. It's critical for patients. It's critical for governments. It's critical for all industries everywhere to really know that and appreciate that, that even if we make a huge colossal effort, to mitigate some of these things. We still have some things that we just have to be prepared for that may still be affecting us and happening.
2: So, Well, like um, Dr. Jay said earlier too, I mean, you look at stats that are based on science, you can't argue it. You can't argue with it or you're an idiot. And so I I think that there is so much more information that we have that I'm just glad that more ears are listening now that at least I feel um, people are opening up to Uh, what we have to do. And I think it's us continuing to use our voices in a way that's not attacking people with differing opinions. It's educating and, and hoping that they'll open up their minds to new ways of thinking. We like to wrap up with a speed round. If you're game. Sure. All right. And you can both answer independently if you like. So what meal makes you feel at home and who cooked it? Emily.
3: Ooh, Definitely roasted peppers. From my grandma. My grandma's super Italian and she makes them with capers and parsley wow. and Parmesan and just nice roasted pepper dish. Nice. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm penne Bolognese from a fancy Italian restaurant. Sorry, mom.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are your favorite slash
3: nerdy hobbies at home? I feel like everything I do is nerdy.
2: These days, Linda's the super crafty one, so I'm sure there must be something. uh, I I collect coins, so that's my thing at home. Old, ancient (laughs) coins. Yeah, I
3: joined the San Diego Plumeria Society because I'm obsessed with plumeria flowers, and I've been planting them like all in my backyard. And I apparently they have a society, and it's thirty five dollars a year, so I joined (laughs) it, and uh, you know. Got to learn about
0: plumerias. I think Linda <laughs> might so join cool. your society. <laughs> That's so
3: awesome!
0: <laughs> right? I'm a member of the Denver Astronomical Society. Are you ready for this tagline? One mile closer to the stars.
2: Oh my, <laughs> my gosh! <laughs> I, I saw that you have your your um, NASA side to you, like the some of your um, past work in history, and we love that. We've actually. We love NASA and we, we've we've gone several times to their facilities and they've taken us through some of their like simulated gravity uh, at different points like the moon or the space station. Oh, my gosh. So I could super nerd out. All right. Love so it. what smell reminds you of home?
3: Probably like
0: garlic. <laughs> <laughs> Is
1: that a good thing? That's a great <laughs> thing.
3: Maybe.
0: Jay? Yeah. I'm going to shout out to the Adirondacks and say wet mud. wet mud oh man i do know that smell
1: (laughs) (laughs) name three things on your bedside table
3: uh game of thrones the book the book that we're reading for the book club jay what's that one
0: uh the one by kim stanley robinson ministry for the future yep and a journal Oh, amazing i have my noise canceling headsets thank you um i have a pile of books that i'm supposed to be reading And I tend to just watch Netflix and then a glass of water. Oh, yeah. we're Linda and I are nerdy book
2: readers, but I tend to have a pile that takes me forever to get through. Uh, Last question. What is a memorable growth moment for you?
3: I think basically COVID and intubating patients with COVID. That's when we put a breathing tube and kind of put them on the ventilator. Um, And really just like being faced with the unknown. This was kind of in the beginning when it first started and we didn't really know what was going on Um, and just kind of like putting my guts to the unknown there and being like, okay, I'm learning how to do this very important skill while trying not to freak out that I might get a deadly disease (laughs) and spread it to everybody here. So that was a pretty significant learning point.
0: I was a, I was a rower in college and I kind of went to college just sort of, you know, wimpy and entitled. And my coach said to me, I did. I rode. Yeah. I just, I like hearing guys from college say that like, Wait, You row crew. Yeah. <laughs> I, I row crew. And my coach said to me, rode, he said, Hey, if there's a problem in the boat, it's probably your fault. Like, o- always think that. And it changed the way I sort of viewed the world.
2: This goes to show us as well, there are so many things, when we're thinking about climate action, there are so many things that I still don't think about, like the the aspect of what they were telling us with how professionals in their field that people trust and look up to, they need to get in the corner and they need to be the ones focusing our energy in a way that can make it a, a better planet for all of us.
1: Yeah, there's so much we don't know and that's why we love these Emma Talks.
2: And we love you guys joining us, so please continue to come and listen and chat and interact with us on social because... If you DM us things that are important to you, they're important to us. We want to hear about it. At At Home is where you can find us.
1: Oh, and we'll put all of the links that we discussed in the show notes.
2: Dr. J and Dr. Emily have a lot of stuff to share with all of us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Love you, Lindy.
1: Love you. Whoa, that was loud. (laughs) Too much love, too much love.
2: And by the way, we have an amazing team and just want to say a huge thank you to all of them.
1: We could not do this without them.
2: Brandon Angelino.
1: Annalie Bell.
2: Hannah Fan,
1: Courtney Ioannis.
2: West Friend.
1: Chris Cobain.
2: Nicole Schachter.
1: And Sabrina Iacobucci.
2: Also, our theme music is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And our music composed and produced by Rick Russo.
1: Thank you so much for listening. And if you have a few seconds, don't forget to subscribe and rate.
2: Great. Yes, please do. Please do. And also leave comments on our social media at At Home. We love to hear from you. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT is awesome and believes that the smarter the home, the safer the security.
1: I can't wait to see what they do next.
2: They're going to put Google Nest doorbells on the moon.
1: <laughs> Actually,
2: i like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with our Google Nest doorbell.
1: I do love how when we're out at dinner, we can see exactly what's going on at the front door.
2: And we can control our ADT smart devices like... Lights, locks, the security system with Google Nest speakers and displays.
1: Mm -hmm. All you have to say is, hey, Google, to get started.
2: Well, I think it's great for people to help protect what matters most with all of this. Plus, 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google.
1: Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer.
2: Hey, Google.